The Energy Gang is brought to you by SunGrow, the leading global supplier of inverter solutions for renewables. During these uncertain times, SunGrow is committed to protecting its employees and reliably serving its customers around the world. SunGrow has also leveraged its extensive network across the U.S. to distribute face masks to communities in need. Learn more about SunGrow's work at sungrowpower.com. The Energy Gang is also brought to you by CorePower. CorePower is a leading U.S.-based developer of battery cell technology, serving utility, industrial, and mission-critical markets across the globe. CorePower is dedicated to promoting widespread energy storage adoption while maintaining control of the manufacturing process domestically in order to stabilize and protect our U.S. grid. CorePower designs and manufactures the 1500-volt Mark I energy storage system, which offers best-in-class safety features, market-leading energy density, and low installation and operation costs. Find out more at Core Power, that's K-O-R-E, corepower.com. From Green Tech Media, this is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions about the fast-changing world of energy. I'm Stephen Lacey, a contributing editor at GTM. Welcome to the show. This week, a tale of two stimuli. Europe is crafting a 750 billion euro recovery package in response to the economic impact of coronavirus. It will devote more than 200 billion euros directly to low carbon infrastructure projects, and that could enable hundreds of billions more for renewables, efficiency, clean public transport, and hydrogen. Meanwhile, here in the U.S., our recent stimulus sent billions of dollars to debt-laden oil producers, and with potentially one shot left to pass another recovery package, everyone is afraid to utter the word climate. So, coronavirus highlights yet another political and economic divide. How badly is America squandering this historic moment? Plus, we're going to touch on all sorts of goodies from our listener question mailbox. We're going to touch on offshore wind, undercovered climate solutions, uh, more regulatory drama, plus a little career advice as well. Those are all coming from questions that our listeners are submitting before this show and in real time because we are back with another live show from quarantine. To the people listening to our feed, I may sound like my normal disembodied self, but we also have many hundreds of people here with us in real time who can see what I look like without a hair or beard cut for three months. Uh, I'm at my home studio in Boston. I'm on day 88 of quarantine here. You can't see this on the live feed, but in the wall next to me, I have carved out all the days that I have been sitting in this closet talking to people. Uh, my two co-hosts are with me. I see them more than anyone beyond my direct family. It is Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw. Catherine Hamilton is the co-founder and chair of 38 North Solutions, and she's there in Arlington, Virginia. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for asking. I haven't carved anything anywhere, but I've certainly been busy doing other stuff. Yeah, have you made anything while in quarantine? Yeah, I brought some show and tell. I've been obsessed with- Oh, let's see it. I've been obsessed with masks because I've been trying to find like the perfect mask pattern. And I've got Joanne Fabric seems to have the best patterns. This is my favorite. So far, it's all, all of them are reversible. <laughs> I only make them for my family because I don't have time to make them for everybody else in the world. And then um, this weekend, my son and I decided to do a crazy project and painted rocks because like, what else are you going to do with the rocks in your yard? So this was my little mountain rock. It's got snow on the top and some trees. So I, I love it. we're trying, we're trying, we're pulling all of our stops out to try to be creative and keep ourselves busy on the weekends. Well, maybe after this show, we can set up an Etsy page and we can start selling <laughs> your 
Chigger Shaw is with us. He's the president of Generate Capital. He's our other co-host, and he is there in Bethesda, Maryland. Jigger, hello. Hey, how are you? So have you been keeping busy with arts and crafts in the house? I have been. My son is four and a half, and he is a handful. So we have to have lots of arts and crafts. We've gone through glitter markers and regular markers and crayons, and he always wants to sharpen a pencil. And then he breaks a tip like as soon as he sharpens it because he pushes down too hard. So it's crazy. The only thing that I've been making is this is this wonderful beard. And <laughs> I, I think I mentioned in our last show that I built a skateboard. And I finally, you know, I haven't skateboarded in 20 years. And I decided to build a skateboard. And I'm now I'm going out to the skate park in the early mornings and getting on the ramps again. So I've found my inner child nice. once again. Before we get into the main topic, I want to revisit some predictions or assumptions that we made at the start of this very strange period. So economies around the world are opening back up. Uh, Sometimes it feels like we've just forgotten that coronavirus is a thing anymore. People and governments are trying to navigate this new world, how to work, how to get around, how to meet up, how to grow companies. And so we, of course, throughout the last uh, eight or nine weeks have been thinking about what this means for energy and climate right? Is there anything long-term that will come out of this that will have either a positive or negative impact on environmental issues or on energy specifically? So I want to know, is there a prediction related to the energy or climate impacts of coronavirus that you made early on that didn't come true or that you would now reconsider? So Catherine, anything that you are now thinking differently about? So in the words of Yogi Berra, it's tough to make predictions, especially about the future. Uh, I am not a big prediction person, but one thing that I would say I've been surprised by is wildlife coming back. You know, we think a lot about energy, but not necessarily about the ecosystems in which we live. And, you know, from coyotes going across Golden Gate Bridge or in a bear in my kid's school parking lot, you know, there are all these indications and us being able to hear birds instead of airplanes outside. There are all these indications that nature is kind of coming back. At the same time, there are a whole lot of pretty bad things going on. So as tourism and other economic activity has slowed down in some areas that are ecologically sensitive, land grabs are coming in there and additional wild animals are being taken. And in fact, the pangolin is the number one most illegally trafficked animal in the world. And it's also one of the most threatened threatened species and that is the animal it's the little it's a little animal that curls up in a ball with scales on it that that may have been the origin of the coronavirus the more that we do to our ecosystems the more there's an ability for this zoonotic disease transfer sort of between mammals and and humans and so you know i've been thinking about this and and especially today when the administration just announced that uh, Alaska in the Denali National Park and in other parks in Alaska, you're now going to be able to do those hunting techniques that were shut down, the you know shining lights in bear caves and being able to go in and just shoot all the mothers and cubs or luring them out with food and then shooting them. So I'm thinking a lot because I spend so much more time thinking about energy and electricity, but really the systems around us are not only about having you know nature in our midst, but also about like the our health going forward. And it's just something that has really struck me over the last couple months. 
yeah, certainly there has been an increased conversation about habitat loss and what happens when wild animals are driven closer to human populations. And uh, of course, disease transfer is a topic that we're all thinking about now. So um, certainly a relevant topic, although please don't say that humans are the virus. That was uh, one of the original <laughs> memes going around when this thing first hit. Jigger, what about you? Any climate or energy specific uh, predictions that you made that you are reconsidering or, or thinking differently about? Well, gosh, I made so many, and most of them were wrong. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, like which ones to choose from? Well, what were the wrong ones? Well, from the innocent, which was like we had we had paid for a trip to Disney at the end of April, which I was convinced that we'd be able to go to because, you know, I figured it'd be like a three-week thing. And then, you know, you'd basically, everyone would shut down, no one would have coronavirus, they'd all heal, and we'd move on. But, you know, that didn't happen. And then I certainly thought that oil prices would have gone even lower. I think I did predict that, right? I thought the oil prices were probably going to get all the way into the teens and maybe even 10. And it certainly went negative at certain hubs. But globally, oil prices really stayed at sort of this $30 range. So like, I don't think it really cratered as far as we thought it would. Although, you know, they're still suffering pretty mightily. Yeah, I mean, we're seeing but we're seeing Brent crude up in in the $40 a barrel range now, which I think is higher than a lot of people assumed we would be at this stage in the crisis. So certainly, that's low by recent historical standards. And I think, you know, a couple years ago, or a year ago, if you talked about oil prices in the mid 30s or low 40s for a long period of time, people would have said that that's a crisis. But it feels to me like prices have shot up faster than we assumed they would. Yeah, I mean, I mean, just suffice to say 40 bucks is still not profitable, which is why Bernard Looney actually, you know, laid off 15% of the office workforce at BP recently. So like, I do think that, um, you know, folks still realize that at 40 bucks are not really making enough money to, you know, to pay out dividends and do all that stuff. So for me, um, when this all started, I was very open to the possibility, not convinced, but open to the possibility that this might change our relationship with science a bit. So if if we think about how this conversation was going in our world at the start of the pandemic, it was it was often described coronavirus was described as climate change and fast motion. We could see what happens when we didn't prepare for something that experts told us blatantly would happen, that it would happen, could happen any year. And we can see systems break down and the costs add up when we were not able to respond to it. And, and I wanted to believe, certainly not convinced, but, but I wanted to believe that our lack of preparedness would, would resonate with a lot of people. And the polling shows that we're just seeing this, experiencing this pandemic very differently along party lines, right? Whether you believe coronavirus is a threat, whether you think we should open up, whether you think we should wear masks, whether you think the WHO and the CDC can be trusted, they all break down along party lines. And where I once was maybe a little hopeful, I'm now pretty cynical. And for a brief moment, I felt like maybe this would elicit some kind of change in our collective psyche about the importance of science and maybe get us thinking a little bit differently about something like climate change, which has very similar impacts just on a longer time scale, but it's only widened our existing divide. So um, I, I think my mindset has shifted considerably over the last few weeks in particular. It's been horrifying seeing that there are people who who don't believe that coronavirus is a thing. Like to me, that was shocking. Uh, you know, I, I, but I'd say I think a lot of this is sort of that, what's that quote from Bill Gates where it, 
it thinks it feels like things are going slow and then it, then it happens all at once. And I think you're I think you're going to see something similar here. I do think that I mean after I don't think it's eight or nine weeks. Uh, maybe it is for you, Stephen. I've been sort of holed up for twelve weeks here, but uh, um, but you know I do think that there are a lot of people you know on both sides of the aisle that are basically you know, going stir crazy and, you know, are pining for their old life again and are taking huge risks because they really want their old life. I mean, and and so I don't know that that's political as much as human, but I still think that folks um, are rethinking, you know, their relationship with uh, the folks who are most vulnerable around them and, um, you know, making sure that folks who are immunocompromised are protected and and all of that. So I, I wouldn't I wouldn't take too much stock around what people yell on Twitter. No, the polling very clearly shows that this breaks down along party lines. I mean, the the, the data is very clear. Um, so I, I, I disagree with that. I mean, if you look at what 538 has been tracking or what Gallup has been tracking, it is v- we are very clearly experiencing this pandemic and our relationship to it in through a partisan lens. Um, the other thing is just, pe- you know, car purchases. So at the beginning, it was sort of uncertain what this would do to transportation. And now it's very clear that like people are going to be buying more cars. Hopefully many of those cars are electric, but public transportation is going to take a huge hit. And, you know, a a survey that was just released by Swiss investment bank UBS showed that 27% of respondents said the virus had increased their desire to buy a car. uh, And that's up 10 percentage points from February. So very clearly, I think we're going to see some shifts in personal transport that may not be good. Let's move into our lead story now. So Pretty much everyone agrees that America needs to spend our way out of this ongoing economic mess. There's disagreement over how and how much, but little disagreement over whether the government needs to spend more money to buoy the economy. That's the case in a lot of other industrialized economies. And where they devote the money tells us a lot about what they think the post-coronavirus economy should look like. In Europe, that's low carbon. In America, it's business as usual. The European Commission recently unveiled a spending package worth 750 billion euros, and a huge chunk of it's going directly into a wide range of low-carbon projects. So what is Europe doing that's worth watching? And is it futile to expect America to adopt any similar spending? Are we wasting this moment? Uh, Catherine, what does the European Commission plan that just came out say? What are the areas of focus? Yeah, so they'll do 500 billion euros for grants based on need from different countries. And remember, different countries have been impacted differently. So Italy and Spain have been very poorly impacted by COVID, whereas the Nordic countries less so. Um, And then 250 billion euros for loan programs. And they're going into one big piece of it is building renovation. And that's public sector buildings like hospitals and schools. It's low income housing. Um, They have renewables that it's going into hydrogen, a lot into hydrogen programs, clean mobility, the circular economy. These are things that we words we don't use in the United States, and then also into a just transition fund. And so it's, it's a very big project that they think will create lots of jobs and get people back on their feet. The issue is now that they they have to get it approved by all 27 member countries of the EU. And chances are it won't look like this when it comes out the other end. Uh, Jigger, what in this package is interesting to you? Um, in terms of the priorities that they're setting here? Well, so the part that I'm more interested in is uh, the stuff that departs from business as usual, right? Remember, 
I mean, renewable energy was business as usual. Last year, you know, 70 to 80 percent of all new capacity additions to both European and U.S. grids were were net zero carbon, right? So, I, I mean, in general, I don't count that as as new, right? I think that, and even in the electric vehicle world, in California, the number one selling car last month was the, the Tesla Model 3 above the Toyota Camry and the Honda Civic, right? So, so business as usual is different than what we defined it as in 2008. The part that I think is most fascinating is the hydrogen and electric vehicle charging side of things. Remember, you know, the Germans in particular have fought electrification for a long time. It's really only the last couple of years out of the VW scandal that they really started looking at this differently. And so I think the the commitment to universal infrastructure to me is a really big deal. The other part of the e-recovery that I thought was fascinating was around heating. Because remember, for a lot of these European countries, you know, heating is such a much bigger deal than it is in most of the United States. And so the commitment to decarbonizing heating is also a really interesting thing. And hydrogen plays some role there, but also geothermal and, you know, some of these uh, district heating loops, which has been commonplace in Denmark, for instance, but hasn't really made its way through the rest of the EU. The last piece that I'd focus on is really around the circular economy. Um, Remember, you know, the Germans and the Italians have 1,800 operating anaerobic digesters already in their countries. I mean, this has been around for 10 plus years. The UK has put a bunch in. I get the fact that they're no longer part of the EU, but they're close enough. And um, and so this whole concept of the circular economy and what to do with waste is something that the Europeans have been far ahead of us on. And I think that for them to go all the way and take all the learnings from those countries, as well as from the Nordic countries, who frankly are importers of garbage. I mean, like Sweden actually imports garbage to process because they have excess uh, processing capacity. So so that I think is really interesting. And it, it I think it pretends very well to the technology jumping over the ocean and coming over to the United States. I want to get your opinion on the green hydrogen stuff. First, Catherine, let's talk about electric vehicles. So Germany has the most ambitious plan of any of the European member countries. And they, to the chagrin of many automakers in, in Germany, they're basically putting all incentives toward electric vehicles, both electric vehicle purchases and electric vehicle charging. What is going on there in Germany? Yeah, it's like $10,000 per vehicle. And part of that would be paid for by the car companies, um, which is which is significant. Germany's proposal is three times bigger than the U.S. stimulus package was in our recession. It, it, it is a big package, and it covers seven different sectors, and their parliament still needs to approve it. But um, they are really, they're really keen on making sure that the, that vehicles are a big piece of that. So Jigger, can the U.S. borrow anything from Germany's push here into electric vehicles and in thinking about our upcoming stimulus, potential stimulus? I mean, is there anything that we should be doing in terms of electric vehicle infrastructure that we can borrow from what's going on there in Europe? Well, I'd like to think Germany borrowed the idea from me since I posted it on LinkedIn like eight weeks ago. No, look, I think putting in EV chargers at most of our gas stations is a good idea. And I think um, 
The USDA has a subsidy program for biofuels already for gas stations directly. So there's actually a mechanism by which the U.S. government could do this. One thing that we've talked about in this show many times is that the U.S. is not a leader in any of these areas, and we have never claimed to be. We are on the innovation side, but we've never been on the deployment side. Whether it's solar PV or onshore wind or now offshore wind, we like being five to seven years behind Europe. We like them to actually deploy stuff at the most expensive point of the curve. And then once they hit some sort of cost of, you know, like of deployment-led innovation, then we say, okay, maybe we're ready for offshore wind now that it's only nine cents a kilowatt hour instead of 29 cents a kilowatt hour. So I think this is par for the course. The Europeans always lead in these areas, and then we follow five to eight years later. Yeah, they have a much better appetite for regulation than we do. So with the circular economy, for example, they have this WE directive that basically tells you where every single piece of the waste stream has to go. And it's been in effect for a while. And so they're used to that. What I found interesting was that the bankers and finance ministers are behind a lot of these ideas. So they really do believe that economic recovery should be able to also drive down emissions with clean energy infrastructure. So when your corporations and your finance ministers and your bankers are behind it, then you might actually have the political willpower to get something done. Yeah, I mean, the bankers have been behind this stuff since the 90s in a country like Germany. Um, Jigger, what about the green hydrogen stuff? Why is Europe putting so much emphasis on hydrogen right now? Because they're having the same problems that we've had earlier in California, right? So when you think about the Europeans, they have a far more robust grid system than we do. So whether that's undergrounding all the cables or building much larger, more robust circuits, or even being able to use their waterways to, you know, to promote more transmission, they've done a lot of work in that area. So they haven't had the amount of curtailment that we've had in the in California. But as they get to higher and higher penetrations of renewable energy, they are starting to see curtailment in Germany in particular, but also other places. And so now they're starting to realize that they need to do something with all this extra power that they are basically curtailing. And green hydrogen is great, right? I mean, it's a technology that frankly has been around for 60, 70, 80 years. It's not like electrolyzer technology is new. And the amount of investment that's been made by the Shell and the, you know, the automakers in Germany, the Japanese, I mean, even the Bush administration had the big hydrogen uh, research and development effort in the 2000 to 2008 timeframe. Um, we actually have a ton of innovation and a ton of technologies that are ready for for deployment in that space. And they've even found that hydrogen is a way to decarbonize steel and, you know, other heavy industry and help them decarbonize. So so I think this is a winner all around. It, it helps renewable energy and it helps to, you know, set the pathway for greening up the industrial sector. Yeah, 93 CEOs are part of this Hydrogen Europe group and they sent a letter to the EU basically promoting this in in the stimulus and, and including the entire value chain where it's whether it's existing or new industrial feedstock, replacing natural gas for heating, whether it's industrial or space heating, mobility, and then also balancing electric grid. Yeah. So what is the most attractive use of hydrogen jigger? Well, today, the most profitable use of hydrogen is, 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 is fuel cell forklifts, right? Which is what Plug Power is doing for Amazon and Walmart. And they're doing that throughout Europe as well now. So, I mean, that, that is the most profitable application because it's 
I think Walmart believes it's a 31 or 33 day payback. Um, so, so that's the most profitable. And then you've got, you know, our friends at Nikola who are they're looking at class six, seven, um, heavy trucks. And in general, I think most people believe that carrying around batteries that are, you know, like able to send those trucks for three, 400 miles doesn't make a ton of sense. And then the infrastructure to recharge those trucks quickly uh, makes even less sense. And so hydrogen is being used for look, looked at for these heavy vehicle applications too. Hold on. You just breezed by something and said our friends at Nikola. Uh, let's just be clear that like uh, I'm very skeptical of this company that just recently went public, uh, Nikola Motor. We'll probably talk about it in a future podcast. We're going to do a, a deep dive interchange on them. But um, you know that's a, a, a heavy duty fuel uh, fuel cell trucking company that is raising a lot of eyebrows. So I just didn't want to breeze by that. <laughs> They're all friends. Come on now. Like, you know, we talk about our friends in the right. oil industry, too. So at some point, I mean, you know, like, I, I don't know that they're more likely to succeed than any other company. But, you know, they did have a nice reverse merger into a SPAC, uh, you know, last week. So well, we'll do a deeper dive on that uh, in upcoming podcasts. Catherine, let's shift our focus to the U.S. There is question about whether we're going to get another stimulus. A lot of our listeners wrote in with questions about um, where spending priorities will shift to. Um, is it going to happen? Are we going to get another stimulus? And has the game changed at all, either negatively or positively for low carbon solutions? So we probably will get, we may get an infrastructure bill. First, there's a bill called the Surface Transportation Act. And the Surface Transportation Bill has to pass in the House and Senate. And, and the Senate already did their Surface Transportation Bill last summer. So it's all ready to go. And it has, this is the Senate where John Parasso is the chair of Environment Public Works. He is not what I would call a green warrior. He, there's a whole section on climate change in that service transportation bill. And it includes charging infrastructure. It includes reduction of emissions at port facilities and a carbon reduction incentive program for mobile sources and congestion relief programs. It has a bunch of provisions, certainly not as far as you'd need to go, but it does have a whole climate change section. And then the House just released its bill, which also has a lot on reduced greenhouse gas emissions and charging stations. So I think something like that is possible. Now, what the House wants to do now is cobble together a bunch of things, like maybe it's this transportation infrastructure piece, but maybe then it's also the Green Act, which are the tax credits coming out of the Ways and Means Committee in the House. And maybe it's also out of energy and commerce where they were, you know, you might have um, some water provisions, weatherization and efficiency provisions. You could have your National Climate Bank, which is now being called the Clean Energy Jobs Fund. So you could have a bunch of things coming out of that committee and cobble together. They're trying to do that before the 4th of July recess in the House and get that passed. Now, it will take a lot to get that whole piece through the Senate. Um, but I think some components could get through. Um, you know, there's a lot going on. They still have to do spending bills, all the appropriations bills. Um, they still need to also get ready for the election. So so there's a lot also that they're trying to have that they have on their plates. But I do think something in infrastructure could happen. The issue is, it's not going to be messaged as climate. But you could get some good impacts from that to clean energy technologies, especially in mobility. This feels to me like a really wasted opportunity here in the U.S. I mean, this 
pandemic and the resulting economic catastrophe has exposed deep, deep wealth and uh, class inequities in this country, uh, especially across racial lines. And the divide is only going to get worse. Um, and I, and there are plenty of programs that we could probably develop as part of a stimulus package that lies at the intersection of climate change, clean tech, and racial and economic justice. You know, re-roofing community centers and you know black homeowners with, and putting solar hot water and solar PV on it, using out-of-work oil and gas workers to plug every methane leaking abandoned oil well across Texas, Oklahoma, and North Dakota, creating more robust wind, you know, and solar technician training programs at every community college in the US. Like there are tons of ideas here that we could be implementing that really lie at uh, the cross section of a lot of these problems. And the US is just so far from grappling with these ideas. How wasted an opportunity is this? Well, first of all, I would say, yeah, we don't have a lot of creativity and imagination in our elected officials. Um, but I, I and I, that's, of course, a huge broad brush. I mean, I think there are some people who are trying to lead on this and make a difference. I don't think this is the only opportunity. I don't think this economic crisis is going to go away anytime soon. So I do think some of this is is needing to think creatively creatively about what's in the future. What do we really need to do to get people back to work? How do we need to get creative? How do we make sure that there is a just transition and that we're really dealing with frontline communities and giving them opportunities to come to the table and help define their future? You know, How can we put all of those programs together to do good work? And some of that may just need to be teed up for the next administration. So I don't, you know, obviously I'm an eternal optimist, so I just think there's another chance at it. I don't think this is the only chance we have. I just think we're not going to be able to get the big thing done. Well, that's depressing, but not unexpected. Not certainly, certainly not unexpected. I thought I was being optimistic there. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah I don't know that yeah. it's unexpected. It's, it, I mean, it's actually just a genuine travesty. I mean, for those folks who are paying attention, I mean, I went after Speaker Pelosi pretty hard in Politico. And, you know, like, I think that, I think what she's doing here is absolutely you know, mortgaging our future to get Biden elected. And that's her choice. I mean, like, I get the politics of the moment, but the whole thing is just fraught, right? We're basically in a situation where you've got folks at Calamara who are like writing um, op-eds from the National Wildlife Federation in the New York Times around how we should stand up a conservation corps. You've got um, a lot of great ideas coming around the transom that you talked about for oil and gas workers. We're not doing any of it, right? Instead, we're trying to figure out a way to get people an extra $600 a paycheck for unemployment. And we're not even asking people to rise to the occasion to do more to help their country, right? And we're in a situation where, you know, after you parse through all sorts of weirdness in the jobs report, we're probably at 20% unemployment now. And it, it's just, it is frustrating, right? And I get it. I get it. Like, the worse things get, the more likely it is that Biden gets elected. Why just, why not just leave everything really bad? But it is just heartbreaking to see the politics play out this way. Yeah, I know it's frustrating, but remember, she also really needs to hang on to the House. And if she, you know, every time she puts something out, all the Republicans scream Green New Deal. And so it just it causes people who are in her district swing districts a lot of heartache. So she, you know, she has a fine line to walk. We also she's not the only leader out there. Mitch McConnell won't do this. 
Trump will not do this. I mean, the reason I'm thinking that we could get something done on infrastructure is that the president cares about infrastructure. And if he thinks there is some way they can get jobs created, then he'll do it. He doesn't want to have anything that's even marginally tied to the Green New Deal. So if he can if he can hook his hat onto the you know Barrasso bill, which has a climate change piece in it, like maybe that's going to be all we're going to be able to get done. But Nancy Pelosi isn't the only one out there that makes a difference. I don't know if that's true. I mean, like when you think about how we got screwed over in December on the tax credit bill for the energy storage tax credit, et cetera, it's because she wasn't willing to make a deal. The reason I get so passionate about this is not because I don't understand the arguments you're making intellectually. I totally get them. But you and I both know that we have like 600,000 brothers and sisters who are out of work right now that could be really doing a lot to make a difference. And, you know, they're not being called to action. They're not being put to work. And it's just heartbreaking. And like, I think we can, on the one hand, say, intellectually, we get the game that she's playing, fine, whatever. On the other hand, be super frustrated by the fact that like, we're a pawn in some big old chess match. A quick pause here to talk about our sponsors. We're brought to you by SunGrow. SunGrow is taking the pandemic very seriously with its suppliers and with its customers. When it realized the severity of the COVID-19 outbreak, it put together a task force to facilitate quick decision-making in the face of uncertainty to protect employees and to protect its customers. It prioritized the safety of employees by investing in measures to make sure its factory workers were safe from infection. And the company is collaborating closely with suppliers and customers to ensure it can deliver inverter solutions safely and on schedule. As a leading supplier of inverters in the U.S., it's also leveraged its network across the country to distribute face masks to communities in need. You can learn more about SunGrow at sungrowpower.com. We're also brought to you by Core Power. Based in the U.S., Core Power is situated to meet the growing global demand of the energy storage market. In fact, Core Power is building the first large-scale battery cell manufacturing in the U.S. owned by an American company. Once operational, the 1 million square foot facility will have 10 gigawatt hours of scalable manufacturing capacity. It's also going to leverage a cogeneration plant to be carbon neutral during regular hours and provide power back to the local grid when demand is low. From sourcing critical minerals to battery recycling management, Core Power, with its partners, offers an end-to-end energy storage management solution. Core Power's newly commissioned 2-gigawatt-hour Chinese factory is currently shipping product to customers for integration. Learn more at corepower.com. That's K-O-R-E, corepower.com. Let's get into listener questions. And uh, the first question comes from someone here in real time um, that I think gets to this topic, and we'll kind of segue into the other listener questions. So Jigger, someone asks, um, you're now on the national leadership team of the Clean Energy for Biden um, uh, team. So what does that mean exactly? Um, And will ideas like we're talking about come up as part of that um, leadership team? Well, I think it means that we've come of age as an industry, right? I mean, I think we are now large. We have a lot of people that are employed and we matter to the economy of the United States. And it actually means that we all got to like get involved. We got to give and we got to volunteer, right? That's, I think that's really why I signed up is because in the past, I was just one of those people who sat around and sometimes you write a check, but you know, you don't do much more than that. But now I think, you know, like this is our moment to protect our industry. Another thing we have to do is have a plan for getting people to vote. And like, if you can get 10 of your friends, everybody gets 10 of their friends to just say how you're going to go vote. I think that'll, that'll get us, get us a long ways too. Yep. I mean, Chigger, but what, what, like if, if we have all these ideas and we're sitting here saying, 
Nobody's taking him seriously. Leadership isn't taking him seriously. We have a potential opportunity. How do you make sure that this stuff gets into the conversation if you're part of, say, some leadership team for the the Biden campaign? You write big checks. That's the only way it works. You have to write big checks. We're going to raise a million dollars for Biden this month. And, you know, I'm calling all the people that have made money in the industry and for some write big checks. Like, that's how this works. Like, I just find... Like, I've, I'm just as cynical as everybody else is. The notion that, like, like they're just going to do the right thing because it's good for the workers of this country or whatever else is garbage. Like, they're going to do the right thing because we're raising a crap load of money for them. And we have good ideas and good solutions and all that stuff. And you've got, you know, Bracken and and Sam and others at Evergreen Action that are taking all the good ideas from white papers from Jay Inslee and and Elizabeth Warren and others and and you know and Maggie Thomas and others are doing great work there but at the end of the day this is about them recognizing that we can help and hurt them through the amount of volunteering we do the amount of people we bring out to vote and the amount of people that um you know write big checks right that's how this works all right, let's get into some other questions here. So the top-rated question is um, is all about careers. So let's give some career advice here. So let's see. The question is, what would be the most impactful career route one could take to help drive the world toward a more sustainable future? Lots of ideas in there. Very broad question. I guess the question that I would ask is, if you, either of you had to make a career shift into this space now, how would you go about doing it? Catherine? I think I would go back to where I wanted to be in the first place, which was I wanted to write and teach. You know, I started out wanting to do that and ended up because I couldn't make money doing that going into engineering, which was great. I really learned a ton and I would not change anything about what I did in my life. But if I were to go back now, I think I would be on the reporting side of things. Hmm. Well, so I would approach it this way. Here's a more methodical approach I've been thinking about. And I've I've said this publicly before. I wouldn't be thinking, oh, I should just get into solar. Oh, I should just get into battery storage. I would be thinking about, well, what am I good at? Like, think this field is so diverse. It touches software, accounting, construction, sales, analysis, communications, literally any type of job. So if you're someone who is either in school or you're a graduate student or you're just in your career and you want to change, very likely there's going to be a job opportunity in your area of expertise or in your area of passion. So it's not like, oh, do I need to get into battery storage because that's the most impactful field. I think there are a lot of impactful sectors that you know with a wide range of opportunities. So this is something that I've done in the past that I would recommend. Um, again, I would figure out like what it, what is it I want to do? What are the job kinds of jobs that I would want to do? Then I would just go to trade associations, go to economic development agencies, go to the groups that are aggregating a lot of different types of companies and start categorizing them and then looking them up on a lot of the, you know, on ZipRecruiter or on um, LinkedIn or just going to their websites and looking at job opportunities. And you're going to find dozens and dozens and dozens of stuff that fits what you're good at. So um, I think that that's the way that I would recommend doing it. From the way I read that question, it sounded like someone who is kind of figuring out how to how to get in the space like from the outside so that's that's one sort of methodical approach that i might take jigger what about you well the one piece of advice i've given people for a while is to really have a low bar right and um take the jobs that are available to you like 
Like, it's amazing to me how many people are like, I don't want to join the industry unless I get a job making this much money in this company and doing whatever. And that just doesn't make any sense. Like, if an electric utility company offers you a job in that space, take it. If it's oil and gas industry that offers you a job in that space, take it. Like, just take whatever job comes your way in that space. And then you can move around the industry every one or two years and get to the job you actually want to get to for your career eventually. But, like, but just get in the industry, get some experience. And like you said, like, you know, it doesn't matter what background you have. We can accommodate pretty much any, you know, set of skills that people have in our industry today. That's just how big we are. Yeah, there are lots of skills required. And you can learn something in any job that you have, really, any job, even yeah. the scut jobs. And a lot of it is just figuring it out, right? You're not going to find this job where it's like, oh, I know I'm making the biggest impact on the planet or on climate change. It's like, you're going to figure that out over time. And then that job will lead you to the next one. And you'll kind of adopt your own philosophy on like what you think is the most impactful. Okay, so let's broaden this out a bit. We often talk about um, the typical sectors that are growing fast, like wind, solar, efficiency, batteries. But we have a few listener questions here, um, basically asking what are the most compelling sectors outside of the more conventional technology areas that uh, we're keeping track of. So um, someone asks, you know, what are the technology sectors that are necessary to achieve the clean economy? Um, again, outside of those areas that I identified. Um, what about decarbonizing industrial processes and most importantly, industrial heat? So a question about um, using clean tech to serve the industrial sector. Uh, Jigger, what do you think? What are some of the non-conventional, non-obvious areas that you're really putting your attention to or you think people should put their attention to? Yeah, no, I think it's a good question. I, look, I think that most of this stuff don't, comes down to policy and not technology. So the technologies have been around for a long time. To give you an example, like power to gas, you know, I think is essential. I just don't see how we actually create a 100% clean energy grid without an escape valve by which you take all the excess power produced in the spring and the fall and putting it somewhere, right? So that's what green hydrogen really is, is power to gas. Now, you might be able to convert that hydrogen into methane in the future. You could do other things with it. But I think that whole sector is going to be enormous. Um, it also lets you jump from electricity into fertilizer, into ammonia, into transportation, into industrial heat and other uh, markets. And so if... You've got very low pricing in the electricity sector. You know you can take advantage of higher pricing in the transportation sector. I mean, I think there's lots of things in the industrial heat side. I mean, just standard run-of-the-mill things, right? I mean, like we really haven't done a lot of district heating in the United States. And it's actually so bad that I'd say there's like six or seven small liberal arts colleges in the Northeast that want to get off natural gas. And there's no major ESCOs that want to support them in doing it because they can't figure out the engineering and procurement and construction risk side of, of implementing these solutions, right? So we're working a lot on that. I mean, you know, there's tons of stuff in maritime. So, you know, I think you're seeing a ton of movement around moving ferries and other, you know, boats and ships who are covered by the James Act, which is the, you know, act that covers... Um, you know, US to US sort of shipping and then Puerto Rico, et cetera. Like a lot of those ships, which are short haul ships can all be electrified or turned into fuel cells. Um, we're doing a ton of stuff on fuel cells, which I think are essential in the space. And so I think there's lots of technology. It's really more about getting policymakers to say, this is an area that we really want to cultivate. This is an area where we want to see technology come forward and we want to incentivize 
local mayors and county commissioners and others to, you know, start deploying technology in their territories. Catherine. Yeah, and I see sort of new and more creative applications of what we've already done. So more interesting, small run of the river hydro, potentially aviation. I'm really interested in electrification of short trips, building solar pollinator farms so that you're helping the ag industry and producing energy. Also looking at methane reduction. I mean, there are so many things we can do to make our system more efficient and, you know, save money and clean the air. And then the last thing I would mention is water technologies, because it's all this is all intertwined, and making sure that we're able to effectively and efficiently, say, remove some of the contaminants like PFAS out of water. So, you know, making sure that that um, all of those technologies are put into play too. It just seems like there are many, many opportunities for technological development that we don't talk about a lot, but that there are a lot of innovators out there working on. I'm all in on perpetual motion machines, guys. (laughs) Right. Uh, Okay, so we have some questions here about offshore wind. What are the prospects for offshore wind in the U.S.? Uh, So let's take stock of what's happening right now. Uh, Catherine, how are things going with offshore wind in the U.S.? I mean, there's a lot of interest. You could see just from the Virginia law that there was a, you know, there's going to be a lot more development of offshore wind. I think we're getting over some of the initial hurdles, some of the NIMBY stuff. So projects are definitely out there getting built. And there's a lot of interest, um, especially from some of the European countries coming in, uh, European developers coming in. Um, I think we're going to have some interesting situations with the markets, with pricing, but if, if we can get over some of that, I think there's a it's going to be a really healthy sector in another five years. So we have many, many, many gigawatts planned. A number of states have opened up competitive solicitations, and we've made some progress. Obviously, the recent Trump administration required analysis on how these projects would impact uh, the fishing industry put delays in projects. We that was a surprise analysis that took a lot of developers that put them in the back seat and really concerned them. COVID has delayed logistics as well, so we've seen developers like Orsted saying you know projects may be delayed by a year um, on the East Coast. Uh, Jigger, how has the current situation impacted development right now? Well, I think that what we learned for 10 years ago, right, through Cape Wind and some other stuff is that offshore wind is the, you know, territory for giants to operate in, right? This is not a place for Cape Wind or some of these small developers to play in, right? So you've got folks... Cape Wind wasn't a small developer. Well, I think they had an ambitious project, but I guess they were a a startup Yeah, I just think when you think about Orsted, Orsted is backed by a government, right? Like when you actually go to the G20, guess what? Like someone knocks on your door and says, you better like unlock my project or I'm going to deny you access to the technology that you want from one of our companies. And so like, like it is done at the level of sort of Illuminati stuff, right? Like, you know, these are big companies and big companies. There are ambassadors that get involved. There are like economic development groups that get involved from different governments. Like, like that is where this stuff should be played. And that's where the oil and gas guys get play too, right? When you think about like LNG projects um, and things like that, like this stuff like gets played out over 25 years. You have commodity cycles, you have other stuff. But I, so I'm pretty bullish on offshore wind, but mostly because like all the players that are around the table are part of that club, right? Um, and they know how to align incentives and make sure that everyone gets paid um, to play. 
Offshore wind, the resource of choice for the Illuminati and the global cabal. Right. It's like OWEC instead of OPEC. (laughs) (laughs) So, so Catherine, uh, let's just wrap up this offshore wind piece. Dominion has this 12 megawatt project off the coast of Virginia Beach. Dominion itself is trying to get these multi-gigawatt plans in place. Um, You know, this is a utility that is all of a sudden saying we are super interested in offshore wind and we're trying to figure it out. So 12 megawatt project is absolutely nothing compared to the scale. But like really interesting that a utility is kind of taking ownership of the process and really trying to learn and figure out how to develop a cohesive offshore wind strategy. Yeah, it's really smart for utilities. It is an asset. And that's how utilities live and die by assets. And so it is a really smart move on their part to develop offshore wind. Yeah, they got paid off by the state of Virginia to do it. Right? I mean, like, that's, like, that was the deal. That's how we got 100% clean energy passed by Virginia was Dominion got to rate base the offshore wind, even though it's at like nine cents a kilowatt hour, it raises everybody's rates. But you know, they're also forced now to allow distributed generation and do energy efficiency and do onshore solar and wind, right? So like that was, that was the trade that we made. All right. So uh, one last question here, which is a one of our um, top voted questions. Y'all want to know about regulation. So Catherine, this one goes over to you. Um, FERC issued... Oh, I can feel the love now. (laughs) FERC issued this uh, order in 2019. So I I think it's a very confusing um, regulation. Can you explain what this MOPR was and what does it do to um, hinder renewable energy in uh, PJM? Yeah, it is super complicated, y'all. So remember PJM has the biggest capacity auction in the world. It is $8.5 billion a year. There are 13 states in D.C. and 65 million people involved. It is huge. And there are sort of two sections, uh, major sections of the market. One's the electricity market, and then it's the capacity market. And the capacity market is just like you have to be available. So a lot of generators that can't meet the prices in the electricity market, they're still on capacity. And originally... The MOPR, which is a minimum offer of price floor, it's like the price floor, was set up for what would be like a buyer side manipulation prevention. So there would be big utilities that would both sell and buy from a resource and they would sell cheap and then buy cheap, lower the price. And so they would they would basically rig the markets and drive down the prices. So originally it was supposed to be used very in a very small way just to try to mitigate this buyer side manipulation. And it was um, mostly natural gas plants that were doing this. So what FERC did was in December, they said, well, no, what we're going to do now is we're going to make many, many more resources fall under the same minimum offer floor. But what we're going to do is we're going to say, you're not allowed to take into consideration or you're not allowed to discount all of those state incentives that you would get, no matter what the incentive is. Well, most of those incentives that states are putting forward are clean energy incentives. They want to incentivize new clean development. And remember, FERC regulates transmission and makes for just and reasonable wholesale market prices. States are responsible for their generation mix, what resources they want to have in their state and distribute them within the state. But the advantage of having a large market is that everybody kind of gets to share. You get to have much cheaper resources flowing back and forth and everybody gets to participate in a much bigger, more efficient structure. 
So what this did was it caused a great deal of trepidation because what it looked like it would do is because you were not allowed to discount these state subsidies, that it would raise the price of renewables. But what may end up happen is happening is not as bad as everybody was thinking because PJM has now filed a compliance filing to the MOPR that basically says we would like some flexibility in how we calculate this and how we take into consideration all of these resources. So in essence, the renewable energy resources may be able to be cost effective regardless. And it may just be based on the structure of their contracts with PJM. We will see how this pans out. It's still to be it's to be seen. I had to file yesterday in this proceeding. And probably by the third quarter of this year, uh, FERC will make a decision as to PJM's compliance filing. But what we will have to see is in the auction in 2021, how all of these resources pan out. What you do not want to have happen is states to pull out of the big market and then only have state resources that they can rely on. So for example, New Jersey has been doing a lot of saber rattling about pulling out a PJM. Well, you know who wants them to do that is Exelon and PSAG, because what they want is to be able to cut their own deals within New Jersey for their nuclear plants. So then that's not helping the renewable energy industry. What you want is a market that is efficient and that is competitive and that allows states to make decisions within states as to what resources they want to purchase and distribute within their own state. And I hope that made sense. But one thing I'd say, Catherine, on that is that while I agree with you completely that having a larger balancing area and and supporting that market is a good thing, PJM invited this from FERC, right? The PJM basically said, we don't love the fact that everyone's pushing renewables on us and, you know, forcing all these nuclear plants to stay open. And so they actually went to the FERC and said, hey, give us more tools by which to figure this out. And then FERC went farther than the PJM ever wanted them to go. And then PJM was like, whoops. And then Maryland, Ohio, New Jersey, Illinois, and Pennsylvania are threatening to leave PJM. So, you know, pox on all their houses. Yeah, yeah, it would not be a good outcome. And and I realize that the that that is exactly what happened. That was uh, PJM management has changed, so there is a little bit different view from well, PJM. Well, I hope I should hope they got uh, fired. CEO. Um but I I think that the that the intent could have been read from the current FERC that they did want to promote not clean energy resources. I think that was that was definitely well, and if, you read, if you read Commissioner Glick's dissent, you will see those arguments very much in place. So I believe that was the intent, but I don't know that that's actually what's going to happen because renewables, except for offshore wind, and this is where offshore wind, you know, has a very much of a disadvantage. But wind and solar are so cheap that it, they may still be competitive. It, it, we're still yet to see. Um, but certainly, I, I still think that a larger, more um, cost effective for consumers and more efficient market will be better. We just want to make sure the renewables aren't adversely impacted. Okay, so let's, that was a really good explanation for everybody who's like in the business and who's a regulatory nerd. One last question on this. As we come out of the first four years of the Trump administration, what is the legacy of FERC going to be on the renewable energy industry? 
it's going to be a mixed bag. So remember, there's a lot that they do on natural gas, and I don't follow that as much. But so there's been some impact on climate change because of the natural gas decisions. FERC is more politicized for sure. They're not making decisions in the same with the same methodologies. I don't think that they have in the past. Um, but we do have 841, and it's it was the energy storage um, rule. And and if 841 holds up in the courts. That could be really helpful. Um, and it could be helpful down the line for distributed energy resources and other resources. Um, so that's something that I think positive could come out of it. On the whole, I don't think that's the trajectory politically of the agency, but I think that could be the you know the bright spot. Uh, one last question here, Jigger. Someone asks, are you trying to grow a beard? No, I'm trying to avoid <laughs> shaving every day. <laughs> All right, let's wrap up the show here. We're at the top of the hour. So um, let's give our free electrons. Uh, Jigger, what's your free electron? So my free electron was really to talk through um, this, you know, Nikola thing, right? Which is, I just think that it's fascinating and weird all at the same time. So last week, Nikola Motor Company uh, went public by being purchased by a SPAC. Explain what a SPAC is, um, please. A SPAC is a special purpose uh, stock that just trades um, as an empty shell ready to buy a company, right? That was something similar that Sungevity tried to do. It's not always successful. Um, but in this case, it was. The stock price from the SPAC actually went up 3x in anticipation of this IPO. And then after the IPO, it went up another- it's worth $27 billion right now. 100%. Yeah. I mean, and the CEO, Trevor Milton, I think is worth $8 billion out of it. So, I mean, I don't know that I care all that much about who's worth what and all that stuff. But I do think that this definitively puts hydrogen vehicles in the conversation on U.S. stock markets and in the United States. So I think every policymaker um, and others will start to think about whether hydrogen deserves a seat at the conversation table along with electricity. And so I think that that's a big deal. That very well may be true, but there's there's there seems to be a lot of vaporware here. Uh, I, I think that a lot of enterprising journalists should continue to dig into. And it's funny that you bring this up because uh, Shail Khan and I are going to do a deep dive on this on the interchange tomorrow and i think a lot of folks are really paying attention to this company and asking like um how is the valuation this high and are they actually going to build this truck but i i I do agree that it's it's got people talking about um both electric and electric trucking and and fuel cells so um uh, this is a really really uh thick story Catherine, what is your free electron? Yeah, you know it was going to be a report, right? Um, but I actually think this builds on what we've been talking a lot about, like how do we get all this stuff done? So there was a report that was just published called Investigating City Commitments to 100% Renewable Energy, Local Transitions, and Energy Democracy. And it was published by the Institute for Local Self-Reliance along with University of Michigan and the Sierra Club. And they did a survey of cities that have committed to 100% renewables. They did interviews and collected much data on this 
and really have come up with some recommendations for cities on how to go 100% renewable, you know, by building partnerships, ensuring that disproportionate energy burden on citizens is adequately addressed, that they engage with other cities and learn from each other, that they understand how to use taxes, local taxes and fees and advocate for policies, empower citizens. There's just a bunch of really interesting recommendations. And I thought one of the most interesting things was that they have a series of case studies, three case studies, is sort of a deep dive into what cities have done. And I think when you look at what are we going to do and did we miss an opportunity on the federal side, we really have to look at what local communities have done. I think that's just as important to getting us to you know, a much more sustainable future. Amen. All right. I'll wrap up with something that came through via email and I dismissed and then went back and watched it and I was totally delighted. Um, so I am into this subgenre of music around climate and science and energy themed music. Um, and this Swiss company, Pexa Park, just released this video on YouTube of this guy, Chris Turner, who's a freestyle rapper who joined their Zoom meeting. And they're all talking about like how to brand their company. They, you know, basically they're they finance renewable energy projects and he gets onto their meeting and they're all talking about like, okay, what words should we use to describe what we do? How do we, how do we market the company? And he's sitting there in the corner and then he's they you know, they offer out like um, PPA and baseload power and cannibalization effect. And then he actually uh, does a, like a pretty good freestyle rap um, using all these complicated terms around uh, energy contracts. And it's totally delightful. I will, put a link to that in our in our notes there um and turns out this guy chris turner has he's a stand-up comedian and freestyle rapper this like white guy uh skinny white guy who he's just like pretty extraordinary <laughs> at what he does um but that brings up a couple other people who i, I you know there, there's this whole like subgenre of music on this topic there's this guy baba brinkman who's a science rapper who's done a bunch of stuff on climate change there's a band that i've mentioned in a previous live show maybe it was a year or two ago raptor command which is an elon musk themed heavy metal band um and then there's you know on in the mainstream there's billy eilish who is you know one of the most popular artists today and her she's she writes a lot about climate change you know her her popular song all the good girls go to hell is all about climate change she showed up at the grammys with a no music on a dead planet shirt so i really um enjoy this this genre of music and i think you should go check out this video that will post and maybe you can start getting lost down the rabbit hole of YouTube with renewable energy themed music. That'll be a resounding pass for me. <laughs> yeah, like I was like in the uh Pete Seeger Crosby Stills Nash and Young part of the of the music spectrum there. But I'll check these out. <laughs> <laughs> one listener will. I know one one person out there will. Well, that's going to wrap it up. We want to thank everyone for taking time out of their day for being here with us. Truly delightful to be here. I hope everyone's hanging in. Um, I saw some tweets come through, so thanks for engaging with us in real time. And, of course, you can continue to submit your ideas after the fact, and we'll take some of the ideas that we got here um, during the live show and turn them into future episodes. So if you didn't get your question answered uh, we certainly go through all of them collectively and figure out which ones we want to use as the basis for future conversations. Catherine Hamilton and Jigger Shaw are my co-hosts. Ingrid Lobet is our senior editor. 
The Energy Gang is a co-production of Postscript Audio and Green Tech Media. And if you want to do us a favor and give us a rating and review over there on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts, it's uh, super helpful for us. And we really appreciate you listening. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Stephen Lacey. This is The Energy Gang, weekly debates and discussions on the future of energy.